Welcome to the NATO Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel, and in this episode, I speak with Adeline Ferrand, who serves as part of Meta's global counterterrorism policy team. Adeline leads the company's efforts on regulatory affairs, transparency, and end-to-end encryption. In our discussion, we talk about a range of issues, including online disinformation and radicalization, as well as foreign interference and the growing prevalence of artificial intelligence. Hadlin Ferrand, a warm welcome to NATO Deep Dive. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's uh, look at uh, online communication technologies. They've made it easier uh, for us in our daily lives, but they've also been utilized uh, by terrorists to communicate across borders and have been also used to amplify propaganda. If we address terrorism and, and extremist content online in the last few years, what would you say are the key areas of concern that we need to be observing? Thank you, Sajan. The one area of concern for me um, is, at the moment, the convergence of misinformation, borderline content, and foreign interference that can lead to violent extremism. I think this is a phenomenon that we have seen increase over the last few years. Um, And it is a blending phenomenon that makes it harder to uh, detect and also harder to enforce against because it doesn't conform to uh, habitual notions or definitions of terrorist content or violent extremist content. And so we have a situation in which industry, as well as policymakers, are playing catch up by trying to develop ad hoc policies um, to counter uh, these types of, of new approaches to propaganda and online radicalization. Um, and this ends up leading to situations where those policies might be effective in some cases because they've been developed and tailored to specific movements or groups, but eventually they end up not being applicable at scale. And so we fail to anticipate the next iteration or innovation that those movements and groups can take. And of course, when we are uh, handling this sort of blending of of different uh, and hard to define uh, concepts and ideas, it leads to a mainstreaming of extremist ideas within society and the broader political spectrum. And I think that is a challenge to our political culture and institutions, as well as to security. You spoke about the challenges to political culture. We know that increasingly we find that all kinds of terrorist groups of various different ideological uh, beliefs lurk online through the dark web, through uh, encrypted messaging. What are the challenges when it comes to uh, dealing with those entities that utilize the dark web, that utilize encrypted messaging for communication, for plotting, for planning? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. In terms of end-to-end encryption and encrypted services, um, terrorist and violent extremist actors indeed do use end-to-end encryption. I think it's important to 
focus on what is the use uh, that, that they do have. Um, one is for sharing, propaganda. Another key use is for recruitment. And a third use case is for attack planning. The question, however, is how big is this phenomenon? And that's where, unfortunately, there's still a lack of data, in part due to the fact that those technologies are new, but also to the fact that they are encrypted. And therefore, it is uh, a different kind of technology where you won't have the same type of data and the same volume of data that you might have on public surfaces. So this is why we see increased interest in researchers about how can we understand terrorist and violent extremist use of end-to-end -end encryption. Um, Meta, of course, uh, then Facebook commissioned a research in 2020 by Tech Against Terrorism on the use of end-to-end -end encryption by terrorist and violent extremist actors. And this is a very interesting report in many ways because it illuminates what are the factors that play into terrorists' minds when they're considering using encrypted uh, services and messaging services. So what do we learn about, uh, about the perception of terrorist actors? Well, that they basically will choose uh, a particular app or messaging service based on how they perceive the platform to be secure for them. Um, if the platform has strong policies against terrorist use, if there are controls around uh, the way that users can report content, block content, typically this will undermine the trust, if you, if you will, that terrorist actors place in a particular app. So that's an important information uh, because, of course, policymakers and industry alike are um, in, a, in a very tough debate about what is the right approach to counter this use, even if it's marginal. And I think the first step in that debate is to recognize that end-to-end -end encryption is becoming a key pillar of internet security and privacy. That is the first step because it is providing society as a whole with incredible benefits. And this was underlined uh, recently in a 2022 report by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in the UN that found that E2E uh, makes a key contribution to fundamental rights in our current era. So I think that recognizing those benefits, it's important to, to state that compromising the integrity of end-to-end encryption and therefore of internet security, internet privacy, is not really an option. Um, and therefore we cannot have perpetrated solution, technical solution, as some policymakers say, where you have, you want to have end-to-end -end encryption on one hand, but you also want to have scanning or, or bank doors. And those are technically not feasible uh, currently. However, what we know is how we can deter terrorists from using encrypted services. And we know how to disrupt the use that they, uh, that they may make of those, of those services. How do we deter? By having strong policies by having strong security features, by empowering users to report and to block content that would violate those policies. And how do we disrupt? 
And I think this is, for me, the key notion. It's by tackling discoverability between bad actors, connectability between those actors, and the virality of the URLs or, or other content that they may try to share via encrypted messaging. And of course, this requires a concerted approach by industry and regulators alike and law enforcement agencies um, that we need a targeted use of, of what we call metadata, but within the safeguard of clearly defined legal frameworks. What this does is it it's enables companies basically to compare data points between public and encrypted services to identify high-risk users and interactions, and therefore to take mitigating action. These are all very interesting and important points that you uh, bring up. It actually leads me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is what's the role of tech companies when it comes to uh, algorithms that suggest catered content to a specific user, but which could also potentially lead to a process of, of radicalization? I think the role of, of industry on the one hand, what it seeks to do is to help users curate content based on their preferences. We have an enormous amount of content and everyone recognizes that uh, due to this volume, it is uh, impossible for, for individuals to, to sift through that content and find uh, that which is most relevant to them. That is the, the basic uh, use case at the beginning of, of, of how we apply across the industry algorithms. It's to organize and curate content and help users find the information uh, that is most relevant and useful to them. I think that is an important starting point. Now, there has been a lot of, of interrogation uh, and debate around the, the, the engagement models um, that's, that certain uh, uh, services and companies use and allegations that some of these models prioritize content that would be um, um, you know, extremist in some way, or at least uh, uh, encourage people uh, into uh, behaviors and speech uh, that is that is hateful, for example. And I think this is a, a a fundamental misconception in that debate. Why? Because all of the companies that have been um, uh, asked to, to testify as to how they use algorithms. Well, these, uh, these companies have very clear policies uh, against, for instance, uh, any uh, uh, behavior online that would be illegal, any speech that would be hateful, and certainly against terrorist content. So what happens is that uh, as the industry has built the control mechanisms to counter uh, this type of content. Well, the vast majority of that content is uh, removed from platforms before people even see it. 
However, what has been, I think, more delicate and harder to address, for instance, is the type of content I was mentioning before uh, that blends uh, things that are not illegal, uh, that are not um, violating the policies of, the, the, of those companies, at least in the letter of those policies, and therefore that gets circumvent the enforcement mechanism and which can also game the algorithm to create echo chambers, to feed into people's preferences. And we have to recognize that this is an issue. This is a real problem. Um, but it's a, it's a problem, I think, at two levels. It's not just an industry problem. It is a policy challenge for industry and regulators alike, because it, it goes down to the question of how do we define content that in, encourages a form of extremist thinking and behavior. As we know, and you are, of course, a preeminent expert on, on terrorism, we've never been able to agree on a definition of terrorism. And I would argue uh, much less on a definition of what type of content leads to violent extremism, for instance. Uh, so it's a policy challenge that is for industry and regulators alike, but it's also an enforcement challenge because we need to be able to counter this type of extremist engagement in echo chambers without undermining fundamental rights, such as freedom of expression. So we see here the magnitude of, of the challenge, and this is only talking about sort of major industry players, but what about also enabling smaller platforms? you know, to crack down on those kind of echo chambers. There are certain platforms that are built around the model of being an echo chamber for extremist content. Um, so as we often say in, in, in the field of countering uh, violent extremism, I think this is a whole of society challenge that requires a, a whole of society approach. You spoke about policy and enforcement uh, challenges. One aspect that very much now is a key word when it comes to the virtual world is cryptocurrencies. And given the potential of cryptocurrencies to serve as a vehicle for both illicit financing as well as for terrorist organizations to continue to uh, fund their uh, activities, is it possible? to regulate virtual currencies to prevent uh, malicious, malicious abuse by uh, actors. Um, I noticed that it's certainly coming up in multilateral forums such as the G20, uh, but I'd be interested in your take on this. Yes, I think it's possible to regulate. Um, and I think efforts are already underway to, as different countries, the US, the EU, think about cryptocurrencies at the national level, also at the regional level. I think we are seeing already uh, uh, an awareness that this new technology could be used by terrorist organizations or even more likely at this stage, criminal organizations um, in order to circumvent uh, the mechanisms that have been built over the years within the banking, traditional banking systems um, to to prevent those those uh, criminal and illegal activities. So it's possible. However, at the moment, in the case of terrorism, 
there's little data indicating sophisticated uh, financial plots involving digital technology. And we continue to see a preference for simplicity, especially within the uh, jihadi groups, uh, communities, and networks. So a preference for, for cash, uh, handouts, for transfers using uh, services such as Western Union, and, and most often involving small amounts of money. That being said, there is uh, other ways that the internet can be used to coordinate uh, fundraising. Um, I think gap areas include crowdfunding, as well as online shops, in particular things like merchandise, what I've called uh, uh, the DOI lifestyle, dangerous organizations and individuals lifestyle. Um, because the, the accessibility of online shops today is, is unprecedented, but also the scale is global, really. It's not confined to the big platforms. Anyone can build an online shop um, and promote it. And I think this is an area that is extremely difficult to police. Um, and that will require cross-industry coordination uh, on a global scale. Um, there is, however, potential for increased use of, of cryptocurrencies by terrorist organizations as they become more mainstream. And I think a key challenge in terms of regulating cryptocurrencies will be to mature those uh, regulation and keep in pace with the development of those currencies that will continue to evolve, continue to innovate. And I think it's in the loopholes or in the you know, the, the rapidity with which they, they evolve, that some loopholes may emerge um, that, that criminal organizations and terrorist groups will seek to exploit. Talking about the potential of exploitation, artificial intelligence is uh, something that we keep hearing about. It's growing, it's proliferating, it's becoming uh, more sophisticated. Is AI potentially a double-edged sword in that uh, could it be used on the one hand uh, through predictive software to aid efforts when it comes to uh, counterterrorism? And at the same time, could it be utilized by terrorists to weaponize uh, their agenda online? I certainly think there is a legitimate concern around the ways that AI can be weaponized by various actors um, in ways that we do not yet fully understand or anticipate. And of course, just yesterday, there was an open letter signed by more than 100 uh, AI pioneers and specialists, including, of course, Elon Musk, who are now calling for a temporary halt on the development of, of AI technologies um, for the very reason that in the race to build the next uh, big AI model, uh, we are not taking into account the harms they could cause sufficiently. We're not even able to anticipate um, how uh, they could be weaponized because we do not fully understand how those AI models function, so-called black box AIs. Certainly within that letter, we also see something that I've mentioned before, 
which is the concern around this information and the blending or the creation of content that could be used to undermine trust in government and therefore to radicalize uh, without us having the ability to detect that this content is actually fake. Uh, because AI is able to create the appearance of validity, of legitimacy. And so that is where, at some point, we have a, a, an example of how an advanced AI can surpass uh, humans uh, to create things that we are unable to counter. So I think that's a very important area of, of risk that we need to be aware of and we need to be very um, uh, cautious in how we will approach, in particular, regulating AI. Um, in terms of artificial intelligence being used to counter terrorism, I know, of course, of different programs and initiatives uh, that seek to um, uh, use AI to, almost in a predictive fashion, to understand where uh, the next risks will emerge. But similarly to what we have just said about the potential for AI to be weaponized, I think here uh, there is another risk, which is, you know, how accurate uh, would these predictions be in models that we don't fully understand and, um, and that are not necessarily trained on a representative sample of data. Um, in the case of terrorism, we have um, limited, fragmented data, and therefore we have a, a natural challenge in terms of being able to train an AI to a level that would prevent uh, glaring biases and therefore inaccuracies in the results. To expand this uh, aspect of AI a little bit more, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, once predicted that the winner of the AI arms race, as he called it, would be the ruler of the world. In many ways, it kind of suggests his own uh, megalomaniac uh, uh, tendencies. Um, and it seemed to suggest that it was more concern on, on state actors as opposed to uh, terrorist groups uh, misusing uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, do you think that is the more larger concern is hostile state actors utilizing artificial intelligence for uh, propaganda for disinformation, uh, for controlling a narrative in a very warped sense? No, I would disagree with that assessment. I think the biggest risk, and we have seen this in, in recent weeks since OpenAI made available uh, ChatGPT, is the fact that in the marketplace, because of competition between major uh, industry players, that, by the way, are far more advanced in artificial intelligence than state actors. Um, of course, there is a, a, a need to make those uh, services available as quickly as possible, to put it on the market as quickly as possible. Um, and I think there, therein lies um, the, the risk that actors like well, state actors, but also extremist actors and criminal organization may seek to uh, as we have described, weaponize artificial intelligence um, and create a range of, of issues that we will have a difficulty to identify uh, and to counter. 
That is not to say, however, that, that artificial intelligence does not have an enormous potential for good. Um, and what I hope to see in, in, the, in the coming months and years is how state actors, but also civil society, will be able to leverage artificial intelligence to counter problems that uh, we have enormous difficulty in comprehending because of their complexity, such as, for instance, climate change, such as urban uh, mobility and growth, um, such as trade in um, illicit goods or uh, criminal activities. I think therein lies an enormous potential for artificial intelligence to help us meet the challenges of, of our current era. It's very interesting. And I guess it's also somewhat uh, of a relief uh, as well uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't get to control the narrative uh, on everything as he perhaps wishes to. Um, a final question, uh, Hadlin, uh, for Meta, what would you say are the likely challenges that we will have to factor in and engage with when it comes to a lot of the topics that we've spoken about? Uh, where do you see, uh, if you had a crystal ball, the the challenges that we're going to have to, to face that perhaps are not imminent today, but will be down the road? Well, I think for the industry, the and and for for states um, and civil society alike, I think the the main challenge that I see in in the next ten years is as we as the internet evolves towards a more uh, even more decentralized and to some extent fragmented version of itself. Uh, the question of of internet governance will become ever more central and ever more difficult also to achieve at scale in a way that is consistent. We have seen recently with the war in Ukraine, but also with the COVID pandemic, um, an increase in the so-called splintering of the internet. We have seen tendencies in some countries to uh, claim digital sovereignty. We have seen an increase in internet uh, outages and blockages in different countries in order to handle societal instability. I think this are signs, indications of uh, the type of, of internet that we are heading towards increasingly that is characterized by fragmented regulations, but also different strategies in terms of uh, how this internet is leveraged for government and society alike. And so as technologies such as artificial intelligence and the metaverse uh, become more mainstream, we will also see um, a more difficult discussion and debate between industry, between uh, national regulators on how to police and how to govern um, this expanding and layered realms of, of digital worlds and capabilities. So that, of course, as we multiply the layers 
um, uh, of, of the internet that we can use and engage with, uh, of course, we multiply also the risks. And that's why governance, I think, will be key in terms of us being able to successfully identify emerging risks, uh, but also create the safeguards that we need to continue to ensure uh, a safe and productive use of those amazing technologies. Absolutely. And there's a lot of uh, important food for thought that you have uh, left us with. Uh, let me just uh, thank you uh, again, uh, Hadlin, uh, for joining us on a NATO deep dive and hope to have you back in the future. Thank you so much, Ajahn. It was a pleasure. And uh, likewise, looking forward to our next talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of NATO Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. My producers are Marcus Andriopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the NATO Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.